0: Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to set aside the distractions of the week and the worries of the coming week. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be present here and now. Lord, that you might open up our hearts and our ears to hear and receive the word that you have for us. Lord, might uh, Cameron's preparation and work in the sermon, uh, be glorifying to you. I ask that you would um, fill him with your Holy Spirit, that this would be uh, something that is not of his flesh, but of your spirit. Mm-hmm. God, I ask that today we would behold you in a greater way, that we would see Christ uh, displayed in your word. And Lord, might we uh, see how you are calling us to take one step closer in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you,
1: Pastor Luke. Good morning, Conduit. How are you? Good. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, we're going to jump right into our scripture for the morning out of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. So, uh, Mark is the second of the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament portion of your Bible. So, if you have a Bible, Maybe sitting in front of you in the seat, or you brought your own with you. Um, you know, the New Testament is essentially the latter portion uh, of your Bible, and we have four Gospels right at the beginning of that New Testament that are the four, four, four people's perspective and retelling of the ministry and the life of Jesus. And they each tell. The story from a little bit of a different, uh, a little bit of a different vantage point. Uh, sometimes I like to describe it is if you were in, for instance, if you were ever stayed in a really big hotel, right? And you go to the hotel, it's really big, right? Maybe many, many floors, and you go to your window and you look out and you see a, you see a certain perspective and viewpoint based on the. Elevation, or what direction your room is facing. Well, if you switch rooms and you go up to the penthouse on the opposite side of the building, you're going to have a, a much different view and a much different perspective. Although you are in the same hotel, in the same location, where you're looking from uh, changes your experience there. And And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although all following the ministry and life of Jesus, have a Have have a different perspective. They saw different things. Different things were important to more important to them than others, and uh, and so that's why we get a little bit of a difference, but the same foundational um, heart and spirit through all of the gospels. uh, There, so we're going to be in Mark chapter twelve, verses one through twelve this morning. Uh, and we have it; should have it up on the screen for you as well. I'm reading out of the NIV version of uh, of the Bible. He, meaning Jesus, he then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He said, "He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a watchtower." Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another And that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect him for sure. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then, he, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, and so they left him and went away. So we call this, uh, or this, this parable of Jesus is called the parable of the tenants. Um, meaning like the tenants who rented the land or were asked to take care of the land from the land owner. It should, um, it sh- it should not be ignored. We should be, we should be aware that this particular parable finds its way into the first three Gospel accounts in our Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have um, the telling of the parable of the tenants. And there is very, very, very little Definition or distinction between those three, meaning that all three gospel writers who, who record the parable of attendance tell the story almost exactly the same. Very little derivation from kind of that, that main, that main, um, chunk of information. It should tell us something about this parable. It should tell us how, um, how pivotal how important, how significant all Jesus' disciples, all those who were following him, felt that this parable was to the ministry of Jesus. All th- these three felt like, wow, this was such an important message. This was, such a, this was such a big moment in the ministry of Jesus. We have to make sure that we include this. And so they did with very little distinction between them, right? Anytime you're reading the Gospels, right, and you see, for instance, that the same story or the same wording is used across the base of, um, across the base of those gospels, it should tell us something about how important those earliest followers of Jesus saw whatever was happening, how important they saw it to be, right? Because none of, us, none of us record and writes down and passes along stories that we think are insignificant, right? Details that we think don't matter to the whole story. We, we include things that we believe have significant impact in the telling of the whole, right? And so those closest to Jesus felt like, wow, this is something that we must include. It's important for us to recognize also that this, just like many other um, things in the gospel, is a parable. This is the parable of the tenants. Now, what is a parable? It's important, right, that, that we we grab onto something here, right? That a parable is not a parable literal story Now did did Jesus actually tell the story of the parable of the tenants? Yeah, he he literally told a story, but the details of the story didn't necessarily happen in real life or real time, right? There wasn't actually a landowner that had it, planted a vineyard and asked tenants to take care of it. And his emissaries, his servants were killed by those who were um, taking over the land. A parable is a story that is meant to communicate a moral or spiritual lesson. It was let me tell you a story, read between the lines, get the message but let me just use this way of communicating the message so that it sticks in your brain. And all of us, if you're familiar with, um, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all you, you all, you all kind of understand this, right? It's, there's a difference between someone who would stand up and say, God loves you so much that no matter how far away from Him you run, how significantly you reject his love for no matter how long you do it, that he is eager and excited and willing to receive you when you return to him. Right? Someone can stand up and say that, right? And all of that is true. Or someone could tell you the parable of the prodigal son. Right? Let me tell you, there were two sons, and one of them said to his father, Give me my, insher- my share of the inheritance. I'm leaving. I'm walking away. I'm going to go live my own life. I'm going to do my own things. I'm going to set out on my own. And somewhere down the road, everything in that man's life crumbled to the ground. And he came to his spiritual senses when he was lost in the humility of his position, and he said, Hey, I don't know what else to do other than to turn back to my father and maybe he will make me a servant of his animals. Maybe I can feed the pigs for him. And to his surprise, he returned to his father who greeted him with celebration and grace and thanksgiving that the lost son had returned home. So you see that there are ways to tell stories that communicate, spiritual, that communicate spiritual points without necessarily just standing up and saying the point. And Jesus saw, Jesus recognized, like many of us do, that the telling of stories often takes those spiritual principles or lessons and sets them down deep into our souls in a way that we can't forget the message that's being, that's being communicated to us. Sometimes the point is really, really, really clear through the parable. Like the parable of the prodigal son. The point is really clear. Sometimes um, the the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 is really, really, really clear. Right? Right? Sometimes the message in the parables that Jesus speaks is really, really clear. And sometimes the underlying messages of the parables are not so clear. And the disciples and others just flat out ask Jesus Jesus, um, we got like no idea what you're talking about. None. You're talking in confusing words. Confusing analogies and metaphors, could you please tell us what it means? And sometimes, Jesus, we talked about this last week, I don't know if it's out of frustration or if it's out of what he, like last week I think we read Jesus was like, are you guys so dull that you don't understand this, right? And sometimes Jesus was like, okay, let me tell you what the parable meant, let me tell you what it means. Pastor Luke, I think three weeks ago, preached on the parable of the sower. Right? The farmer goes out to sow the seed, and he sows it on several different types of ground, right? Fertile soil, hard, rocky places on the path, right? And and the, the seed has different responses. Based on the soil that it's planted in. And the disciples are all here, like, yeah, we got no idea what you're even talking about. So they ask him, Lord, what does the parable of the sower mean? And so then later in the gospel, Jesus actually explains it, right? The seed is the word of God. Right? Then he goes to talk about what each different soil means, right? What each different type of soil represents. It's really important, okay, when we're reading uh, when we're reading the Gospels, when we're reading anything within Scripture, to understand that um, that the that to try and understand whatever is being said in the context that it is being originally said or talked in, so that we can be faithful, for instance, to the motive of Jesus' telling, without trying to wrestle with and twist the message that Jesus is seeking to um, communicate through the parable to meet something that we already believe or that we don't want changed about our lives, right? Because Jesus obviously has a point that he's trying to communicate in the things that he's teaching, right? In the stories that he's telling. And so it's important for us to gain some level, at least, of understanding about what the context of Jesus' life and teaching was so that we don't try to wrestle the meaning away from Jesus and apply it to our lives illegitimately or incorrectly. So it's important, one, to understand that parables have an original context and that we should seek to understand that original context so that we can apply it to our life correctly. All right? But saying that parables have an original context and that we should seek to understand them does not mean that we can't or that we shouldn't draw contemporary application or understanding for the underlying spiritual lessons in our own lives. Meaning, just because Jesus was telling a parable to his disciples in the first century, 2,000-some-odd years ago does not mean that the underlying spiritual principles have no application to my life or to yours. They do. But we must understand them in their original context first so that we don't misinterpret or misvalue what the actual lesson is when we take it and apply it to our life. Both of them are very, very important. And that's why parables or just stories in general are so powerful because the lessons within them generally transcend the context that they happen in the parable of the prodigal son transcends the context of the ancient near east and hits home with us here in 2023 right the message connects the truth Transcends any context and any timeline in which it's captured. Okay? So, what is the context or what was happening in the parable of the tenants? Well, we know by just reading the story in its timeline right before Mark chapter 12 that Jesus was actually in the temple at the time of this telling. Meaning he would have been surrounded. With all of the religious bigwigs of the day, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priest, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the elders, all those who we see in the midst of the early Jewish or in, uh, early Jesus ministry. And he tells this story in the midst of what was for the Jewish people the ultimate representation of who God was and what God was all about in the temple, the center of their faith, right? And so he begins, he stands up and begins to tell this story. He says, a man, just just kind of like get this picture in your mind if you can, if you have any type of imagination to imagine this big open temple space. Jesus is gathering a crowd around him. The religious leaders of the day are kind of maybe looking over the crowd Maybe standing like this, having Jesus' reputation has preceded him already. They're already a little bit skeptical. Earlier points in the Gospel of Mark says that they are already plotting to get rid of Jesus because they don't like his message or who he is or the following that he is gathering. And so as Jesus begins to speak in the center of all that was religiously important to them, they're kind of just standing in the background listening, watching, watching waiting for that moment where they can trap Jesus in something or they have sufficient evidence to charge him with a crime. A man planted a vineyard and as you can imagine the people the 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 crowd there begins to begins to maybe try and um, like attach meaning to every every saying, every word that Jesus, that Jesus brings forth, right? A man planted a vineyard. Well, yeah, I mean, like, lots of people plant vineyards around here. Vineyards are important. I wonder why that guy planted that vineyard. Well, I think like most people that plant vineyards, most people that plant gardens, they want an excess of zucchini, right? They want zucchini <laughs> coming out of their ears. They want to eat zucchini from now until Jesus comes home, right? Uh, like Forrest Gump with the shrimp, they're going to name you every single way that you can prepare, um, zucchini known to man, right? Why would someone plant a vineyard? Well, presumably because they want to harvest the fruit of that vineyard at some point, right? No one plants a garden to just let all the fruit rot. They plant it because there is an expectation that there is some fruitfulness on the tail end of it that they will be able to grab and use, right? They expect, there is an expectation that there will be fruit. Well, then this guy, he didn't just plant a vineyard. Now, he put a a wall up around it. And he dug a pit for the press. And then he put a watchtower in it. I don't know about you guys, but I got a wall around my chickens, right, at home. We got to have a big electrified net around our chickens. And the the reason that we do that is to protect them, right? Protect them from predators, right, to keep them safe, okay? And we give them a place to live within that little boundary, right? We want to make sure that they're well cared after, right? Right? why, Why build a wall? Why build a pit for the press? Why build a watchtower? Well, I'm assuming, you know, geez, like, okay, obviously this guy who is putting all these things together is giving this vineyard everything that it needs to succeed into the future. He's giving it protection from those around them. He's giving them the means to actually harvest the fruit, to make the press in the pit. He's putting up a watchtower so that they can be aware of their surroundings. He's giving it everything that it needs to succeed. Everything that it needs. He asked, and then he says, He rented it. And he went on, uh, he rented the vineyard to some uh, farmers and he went away on a journey. He asked others to work the vineyard while he was away. When it was time to harvest, the scripture says, he sent a servant to check on the crops. Now it would seem reasonable that those who had rented the vineyard from him and were using it and were producing the fruit would at that point be like, oh yeah, that's the owner's servant. Let's... um." Let's make sure we re- report correctly, right? The, the harvest that's happening or the fruit that's being produced. But instead, maybe to the surprise of the landowner owner, maybe not, maybe he wasn't surprised at all. That servant, it says, was beaten, seized, beaten and sent away empty-handed. So the landowner What's what is going on here? I planted this vineyard. I gave it everything that it needed to succeed. I am the one that sent these people up to care for it and manage it and look after it. And now when I send my servant, right, to check on the status of it, those whom I entrusted it to seized him, beat him and sent him away empty handed. There must be some kind of mistake. So what does he do? He sends another servant. And they do essentially the same thing. And then he sends another servant. And not only do they seize him, beat him, and send him away empty handed, they actually kill this one. Right? Verse 5 He sent still another. And that one they killed. Listen, verse 5 He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others of them, they killed. At this point in the story, we may be kind of lost, wondering where where is Jesus going with this? Why standing in the temple in front of all that represents um, Jewish life, culture, and religion? Why why is Jesus telling the story as he is telling it? What point? Could Jesus possibly be seeking to get across here? Where are you going with this, Jesus? In verse six, it begins to become clear, at least to us, right? Because we have we have the benefit of twenty twenty hindsight to look back on the whole of the story, right? Remember, th- those standing in the temple at that point may not have totally understood where Jesus even was going with it yet. He had one person left to send, his son. They will certainly respect him, the landowner says. In verse 7, but the tenants said, hey, that's the heir. There's a recognition, right? There was a recognition that the one that was sent the son was the heir was not a simple servant was not like the others was more significant than the previous but that but that he um, that, that 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 the that the process or the plan was still the same seize him kill him kick him out so that we can keep what is ours? The inherit- this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, verse 7. And the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. The next in verse 9 is the question of what then... Will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asks the question rather rhetorically, I think. What, what do you, hey, you all listening, what should the owner of the vineyard do? And maybe, maybe they were expecting to give some type of response that was birthed out of compassion and gentleness and kindness and forbearance and compromise and negotiation or whatever. But Jesus gives them a completely different vantage point on what the landowner not only should do, but is going to do. He will come, and he will kill those tenants, and he will give the vineyard to others. This is not, this is not a very seeker-sensitive uh, message, Jesus. hmm. <laughs> Not a very secret-sensitive message. Okay, so um, <laughs> what what's going on here in the details of the story? Why, like, why? What's the point of the whole story? Verse twelve gives a little commentary on how the leaders are the those who were listening to the parable um, understood it or heard it. It says, "Then they, meaning the um, the Pharisees, Sadducees, high priests—they looked for a way to arrest him. Listen, because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, so that there was this point or this moment of connection between the way Jesus was telling the story and those who were listening, it, listening to it, understanding that the story was meant to describe his relationship with them. There was this really keen moment of like, oh, he's talking to us. He's talking about us. This is meant so that we would hear it. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus, in the midst of All of the Jewish leaders in the middle of the temple had retold the story of the nation of Israel in parable form all the way up until his presence with them. God had planted a vineyard. A people called the nation of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 12 when he was drawing Abram out from the rest of his family, he said, Abram, I am going to bless you and I am going to make you a great nation and I am going to give you a descendants, and I will bless you so that you may be a blessing to the world. You will be my blessing to the world. I am going to plant you. I am going to establish you. Says in, in, in um, Genesis twelve, verse verse two through four, all those who curse you, I will curse; all those who seek to harm you, I will harm them. Right? Sounds a lot like the language of, "Hey, listen, I'm going to plant you as a vineyard, and I am going to put a wall around you, and I am going to build a watchtower of protection." And I am going to build, dig a pit for the wine press of my blessing to be squeezed through you and poured out to many. Don't worry. I am going to do everything that you need to succeed, my people. Everything that you need to be a blessing to the rest of the world. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will establish you. I will set you on this course carry my spirit into all places. Then he sent Moses, generations later, to the people to bring to them a law. The law of God that would help them to establish their distinctiveness from the other nations around them, right? Not a law to keep them under the thumb of God in some kind of moral or ethical uh, pressure he just wanted to he just wanted to kind of like use behavior modification to make them little religious robots. no, but a distinctive quality about them, so that when the rest of the world looked at the nation of Israel, looked at the people of God. They saw the holiness and set apartness of those people and saw in their holiness a picture of the character and holiness of God. The law was meant to bring them freedom from the world, not pain of legalism. And so the people sent, and so God sent Moses to be kind of the bringer and forebearer of the law. And um, if you're familiar at all with the story of Exodus, right, and the, the work of um, the, the life of Moses, you will see that the people of Israel, while they followed Moses as their leader for the most part, generally and as a principle, constantly complained about God and about their deliverance from Egypt, wanted to go back into slavery, Moses and Aaron were continually wrestling the people away from their rebellion to God as they're creating and serving idols, as they're trusting in their own strength and provision and not the provision and strength of the Lord, right? And these people were just like, wah, 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 against Moses, the servant of God, rejecting and rebelling the one that God had established as their ruler or their leader at that point. And so in their continued rejection and rebellion throughout the generations, God would raise up a person and they would be named what? A prophet. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Last summer, we did a whole series on the minor prophets, right? All those names of the books of the Bible that we never read or talk about, right? And Hosea, and Micah, and Haggai, right? And Habakkuk, and Joel, and Amos, and Obadiah, and Zephaniah, and Zechariah, and Malachi, and Joel, right? All of these people, right? Where God would raise them up and say, Look, call my people back to me. Warn them of their rebellion Warn them of their sin. Tell them, turn back to the Lord before judgment comes. Turn back to the Lord before judgment comes. And you know what's interesting about the role of the prophet in the way it's kind of like perceived in the church now and the way that it was actually occurred in the Scripture before? The role of the prophet now is like everyone wants to be called a prophet. Right? Right? Everyone, went, some 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 guy on Instagram demands all his followers call him prophet so and so, right? Because he speaks for the Lord, and I'm not calling into question his calling from the Lord. But what I will tell you that the role of the prophet, historically and biblically throughout all of Scripture, was one that no one wanted at all, right? Because they were the people that stood on the top of the mountain with a bullhorn of, you must repent or destruction is coming. And guess what the nation of Israel did to just about every prophet? They got rid of them. Killed them. right? Seized them, beat them, threw them out of the vineyard. Some of them they killed, right? It was not a glamorous role. It was not a glamorous job. It was not a glamorous calling. And so here's Jesus being like, uh, hey guys, uh, parable of tennis. Does this sound familiar to any one of you? I just, I don't, I don't know. Like, read between the lines. And then, then Jesus gets to the end of the parable here and he begins to tell, but then the landowner said, okay, one more time, I will send my son. Certainly they will listen to him. Now Jesus was obviously proclaiming that, hey, you have, you disobeyed, rebelled against Moses and the patriarchs. You killed and rejected the message of the prophets. Now your father, the Lord has sent me, his son, the Messiah, the savior of the world. What will you do? That's the under, that was the undergirding message right here, right? And he prophesied his own destruction in that moment, right? He prophesied his own death by, by following the course of the parable through his own execution. They seized him, they, they, they saw the opportunity to get rid of them, to keep the, the inheritance for themselves, and so they did it, and he died. He was killed. So what's going to happen? Well, to take the message of the parable and to apply it to this context that Jesus is talking in, right? And so the owner of the vineyard will come and kill those tenants and give it to someone else. What is the implicit, maybe even explicit message that Jesus is there to proclaim about to the Jews in that moment using the message of the parable. God is about to remove you from the vineyard that he has given to you and give it to others. Namely, he didn't say this. This is the this is the application for us, namely the Gentiles. Everything that God had given to you, every every commission to be a blessing to the world, right? Every um, every promise to take the Spirit of God to the whole world and to be a blessing to them, you have abandoned it. You have killed every servant that God has sent, right? You have, you have like, we, like we talked about last week, you have let go of the commands of God so that you can pick up the traditions of men and God has had enough and he's taking it from you. You are no longer soul you are no longer the sole inhabitants of the vineyard of God's um, nation. Now the whole ministry of the Apostle Paul, two thirds of our New Testament, right? Romans, the Corinthian letters, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, First and Second Thessalonians, right? Um, all of these letters that Paul wrote, right? Um, was the was the explication of the promise and covenant that was once established only with the nation of Israel is now by faith in Jesus Christ also belonging to the Gentiles. That the Gentiles, when they express faith in Jesus Christ, when they trust in him for their salvation, they are like engrafted branches to the vine of the covenant that God established with the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the whole world. And so, and so what was taken as the sole ownership of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel was now also offered to the Gentile world through, through faith in Jesus Christ. So that you and I, when we express faith in Jesus Christ, we become co-heirs with the people of God named the nation of Israel to, and, and, a, and the same covenant that God established with Abraham is now established with us to be a conduit of God's blessing to the entire world. Okay? Jesus was speaking here a parable against the Jewish leaders, saying that they had abandoned. The purpose and plan of God, just like their forefathers, and that God was setting those who put their faith in the Messiah, the Son of God, with the plan to be a conduit of His Spirit. Jesus even quoted out of Psalm 118, 22 through 23, which you see in verse 10 and 11 in Mark chapter 12, in reference to them by saying, The stone. That the builders rejected, right? Think about this. You're a stonemason and you're laying a foundation for a home or you're laying the cap of a big wall, right? And you look at a stone and you're like, that's not good enough. That's not how we want it to look. That's not what we want it to be. We're rejecting that. It's out, gone. He was like, it's like that. The stone that your builders, Pharisees, Sadducees, high priests, Jewish nation, the stone that you have rejected, has actually—he's talking about himself—has now become the capstone. Some versions or um, translations say the cornerstone. All right, been—it's the most significant part. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, listen. This is not the only time that Jesus spoke a parable or a message like this. It's not. Obviously, in Matthew and Luke, he also spoke the parable of the tenants, but he spoke similar type parables to convey very similar type messages or communicate similar spiritual lessons. For instance, there's a parable in the Gospel of Matthew called the parable of the talents right? Not talents like I can juggle, right? Which I can't, right? But not talents like I can juggle, right? But talents as in a unit of money, right? That they used back then. And so um, it was like, what will you do with the money that God entrusts to you? The parable of the talents, right? And it was like he used that parable to describe, hey, what was entrusted to you, Jewish people, and what are you doing with it while I'm gone? Before I return, what are you doing with what I have entrusted to you? And so the same underlying current runs through the parable of the tenants. What are you doing? What have you done with the vineyard that I have entrusted you with, my people? What have you done with it? Listen. Like I said, it's important for us to understand the parable in its context, which I hope that we do now. But it's also important for us to understand how the underlying spiritual principles apply to our lives right now, even in this very moment as well. Let me ask us together and collectively this question. What will we do with the vineyard of the gospel that God has entrusted us with? What will we do with the truth of the gospel that God has written upon our hearts? The testimony of the gospel that God has used to transform our lives? the work of the gospel that we continue to receive through the forgiveness and grace of God every day, what will we do with the truth of the gospel that God has entrusted to us? And I don't mean us in a really general way, although I do mean it as a general principle to us, the church, but I also mean to you specifically, person. What will you do with the gospel that is rooted in your life. God has asked us to do very specific things with the truth of the gospel. I've talked about this many, many, many times. You know, the last words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, the last words of anyone's life um, or presence with, her, with you are usually pretty important words that you should not ignore that you should that you should let be chiseled into the stone tablet of your heart so it can never be washed away. Matthew chapter twenty eight verse eighteen through twenty Jesus says what to his disciples All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That God has, God has entrusted us, brothers and sisters, with the truth of the gospel that he has written on our hearts by faith. That Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ was risen, Jesus Christ will come again. That through submission and surrender to Him, faith in Him, we are forgiven of our sins, we are restored to right relationship with God, we will live eternally with Him, and now we walk in a new hope, proclaiming that once I was dead, but now I am alive, once I was lost, but now I am found." Let me proclaim that from the rooftops of my life. Let it seep out of every word that I speak. Let people be able to look at my life, hear no words whatsoever, but immediately see that the glory of God is radiating from my very being because I cannot be anything but overwhelmed by what the grace of God has done in me and will now do through me. What will you do with the testimony of God's grace that has been entrusted to you. Will you therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you? We, because make no mistake about it, okay? There will be no sorry Lord, I was sick that day. I didn't, I didn't get the memo. You just got it, right? One. Okay. Um if we we take the we take the parable we take the words of Jesus seriously, right? What happens at the very end of the parable? The 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 landowner holds the tenants, what? Accountable, right? There is a reckoning that comes, a significant reckoning that happens. And we, you and I, will be held accountable for what we do with the vineyard of the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives to others. We will be held accountable for that. Now, if you look at the parable, you will also see um, that God is patient. That God is kind, that God is forbearing, but not eternally so. If we look at the way that the parable describes the man's or the the owner's repeated attempts to harvest the fruit. I don't know about you, but if I had a servant and I sent him and they beat him, seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty handed. Man, I would be like a man on fire up in that place, right? But the man's like, well, I'll just send another servant. And another, 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 another, right? And they continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, right? What is this, what what should this um, describe for us? Not just the rebellion of those who are watching after the vineyard. It should also say something to us about the extraordinary forbearance of the man, of the landowner. The extraordinary kindness and patience with those who were rejecting his servants. Until, until, like uh, the Matthew account of the parable of the tenants says it this way, the man returned to settle the accounts with the tenants. He returned to settle accounts. How will God find his vineyard when he returns and it has been under our care? Have we treated it like the man in the parable of the talents? From Matthew, right? The parable of the talents. A man who simply sat on the one little thing that he was entrusted with out of fear Or have we put what God has asked us to do and entrusted to us to work in the world for the glory of his kingdom so that it multiplies and produces fruit from out of us and among us? The even broader question is, what will you do with all that God has entrusted to you? We believe that all that we have comes to us from the bounty of God's ultimate goodness, possession, and provision to us, right? There is nothing that I have in my life that has not been given to me out of God's grace. And I don't just mean spiritually, right? I mean everything. The clothes that I wear, the food that I eat, the home that I sleep in, the job that I have, the family that I've been given, right? the gifts and talents that I have, the money that's been entrusted to me, every single thing has been given to me out of God's grace and provision for my life. What am I doing with it? What are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? How are you stewarding your role with your children? How are you stewarding your financial resources? How are you using or stewarding your time? God has given you time. How are you using it? If God has given you a specific calling, a specific mission, are you sitting on it for fear of the world, or are you walking in faith that what God has brought into your life, He will equip you for into the future? Because here, it's the reality that comes out of the parable as well is that God has and will continue to supply every need that you have to do the things that He has called you and wants you to do. There is nothing that God is asking you to do. There is no place that God is is asking you to go. There There is no mission that God has given to you where he is simultaneously saying, you're on your own to get it done, but I want you to do it. You lack nothing to accomplish with great power and fruitfulness the mission of God in your life other than your willingness to participate. That's it. Like, well, if I just had this, then I would. If I just had this, then I could. If God would just open this door, then I would. No, listen, God has opened every single door. I'm just waiting for God to open a door. No, you're not. You're just afraid to walk through the ones that he swung wide open at the very end beginning there is nothing that you lack to do the things that God is calling you to do other than your willing participation to do them you just don't want to sometimes out of fear sometimes out of hardness of heart and rebellion but don't get it twisted it's not you're not waiting on God you're not he is waiting on you God will supply, all, Paul says, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, and God will supply all of your needs according to His riches, glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We, we sing a whole song about this in Sunday school growing up, right? Y'all know it? No? We're going to have to sing that song in a couple weeks then, right? Okay, yes and amen to that one, right? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. He has given us all that we need. You lack nothing to accomplish with great power and fruitfulness the mission of God in your life other than your participation. Listen, brothers and sisters. God has entrusted to us. God has entrusted to us through our own personal testimonies. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That once I was lost, but now I am found. Once I was dead, but now I am alive once I was blind, but now I can see once I was lost in a sea of ethical and moral righteousness and unrighteousness, but now the Lord has set me free from the bonds of that to, to live to live through the power of his grace and truth that God has forgiven me of my sins through my continual surrender and humility to him that God has set my that my God has set my feet on the path of Jesus. That I am continually, day by day, trusting Him for every single provision of my life. I am no longer living in the kingdom of darkness. I am living in the kingdom of the light of Jesus within me. I am standing in that by faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in me and through me. We believe that, we receive that, we live through that, so what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Because the one that has given it to us will hold us accountable for the things that we do with what he has given to us. I think there's no better way. Uh, there's no better way to respond to the word of God, right? Than to um, than to respond in worship, right? We we respond to the truth of God's word by proclaiming with our lips the truth that He's setting into our hearts through His word, right? So we're gonna call the worship team back up. We're gonna go um, back into back into worship. As we respond to, uh, as, we res- as we respond to the proclamation of the word uh, with, with song, um, Why don't you st- stand for a minute, let me pray, let me pray over us. Heavenly Father. Jesus has taught in parables. And we, we seek understanding of these things. Lord, we seek to understand how, uh, Lord, You are drawing out of this parable for us some application for our own lives. We see, Lord, that what You entrust to us, we are responsible uh, to use in a way that brings glory to You To build your kingdom as Jesus did? To proclaim the truth of your gospel to others? Lord, I pray that you would make us bold and courageous. That we would not, Lord, adopt or receive from the enemy uh, the spirit of fear that he desires for us to have, but that we would have a spirit of uh, power of love and of self-control. That, that we may be a, a people who proclaim the glorious riches of the inheritance that we have received through Christ. Lord, show us now in these moments by your Holy Spirit where we have not been stewarding faithfully the things that you are entrusting to us. Lord, so that we may turn to you in repentance. Offer those things back to you, Lord, in humility. And say with one heart and with one prayer, Lord, help us to use the things you have entrusted us with for your glory and your fame. Lord, set our hearts up on fire in worship now. In Jesus' name, amen. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling each one should use whatever gift that they have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should speak as one speaking the very words of God. If someone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Church, you are loved. It's been great to see you this morning. We'll see you next week.